up, everybody? Welcome to the Relinda Speaks podcast. We're back with a brand new episode. I feel like uh, the time seems to be moving fast, except it's also moving slow. Does that make sense? I feel like we're in this in-between phase of we now have been living in a pandemic, so we fully understand that um, we're in this unimaginable time but we've adjusted as best we can considering the circumstances but also there's just so much uncertainty around the future and so there's all these conversations right now should kids go back to school should they not go back to school should we be reopening should we be closing there are a lot of feelings around what's next for us and you know as we think about the second half of 2020 you know how is this going to propel us to the future to 2021 and i know it's really hard to think about even just tomorrow <laughs> that's how i feel i'm like one day at a time it is interesting to think about what we do now and how it will shape the future so that's been something I've been thinking about and we'll keep thinking about as we um, forge ahead, wear your mask. I can't emphasize that enough. Wear your mask. Not a political issue. We are seeing our numbers um, continue to spike. And I think it's really important that we really emphasize the ideas of wearing a mask and really make that something that is just what we do like breathing air so we can try to save more lives and just really think about the collective and not the individual so I want to jump right in today and um, open some conversations some things that are on my mind so as I work with various organizations companies schools individuals on how we can build the capacity for conversations around issues of race and racism, I'm seeing people get stuck. And I'm seeing them get stuck in words, in the language that is used to describe the very systems that are at play. And so today I really want to push thinking around words and how we can just get uncomfortable because we should be more concerned about the issues um, that manifest um, as a result of these systems, not on if we choose to call these systems for what they are. So I want to first start off with thinking about the system of white supremacy culture. Okay, that's the thing. White supremacy culture. It's the way in which we've all been socialized to prioritize and to center whiteness and so in white supremacy culture whiteness is favored there is a superiority of whiteness over anything else and it has reproduced every sector in society so if we think about education if we think about government if we think about law all of these institutions 
have also prioritized whiteness, has elevated whiteness to superiority. And that has real impact. But because we've been socialized and conditioned in this way, it's as if it's the air we're breathing. I'll say that again. It's the air that we're breathing. So we don't even notice or give any attention to the fact that we've been socialized and conditioned this way. We have just been accustomed to accepting it. And so in this moment when there is a challenge of white supremacy culture, for many, it knocks them off their kilter because they don't understand. Well, well, what are you challenging? What are you challenging? This is something for many, they just realize that it's here and it's been here. And so in some conversations around white supremacy culture, you know, there really is this notion of people take the word and they're like, oh, are you labeling me as a white supremacist? Are you labeling me? And this idea that we, when we think about white supremacists, we think about individual acts, individual acts of meanness, individual acts of discrimination, individual acts of racism. However, we all have been conditioned in a system of white supremacy culture. So it's really important that we think systems, not individuals. And how can one move past hearing a word like white supremacy culture and not internalize that that word is being used to describe them when in actuality it's to describe the system. And so we really have to be bold in how we describe systems if we're actually going to attempt to dismantle them. Let's just think about English, how we've come to learn English and who we categorize as literary giants in the canon, as we call it in academia, the canon. Well, who is revered in the canon is largely a bunch of old dead white guys. And we've just come to accept that that's the canon. That's who we revere. That's who we must teach children in schools to learn. And why is that the canon? Well, it's the canon because in white supremacy culture, it favors whiteness, patriarchy, this dominance that suffocates every sector in society. But because that's what we know, we don't even think to interrogate it because it's the air that we're breathing. And now we're in this moment where we are interrogating and we are questioning for many. I've been doing this. Um, I feel like I'm that, that kid growing up where I would always question these things. And here I am as an adult still doing the same thing, still on brand. But this idea of how can we in this moment decenter whiteness? How can we decenter whiteness? And that takes work because we all have been socialized and conditioned in this way. I think it's really important that we think about and again, not internalize these descriptions and descriptors of a system. And I think that that's really hard. I think that's where people get stuck. 
I think that's where a lot of white people get stuck of, of not internalizing. Okay, you're talking about the system white supremacy culture. You're not actually calling me a white supremacist. And there are those folks that are actually white supremacists. We know this, right? But if we could recognize that we all are in a system of white supremacy, then it helps us to really think about how can we participate in interrogating, disrupting, and dismantling that system. And so I really want to encourage people to think about systems and how individual acts, right, contribute to a system, but it's the system that plays out. And so I've been thinking a lot about this in relationship to Breonna Taylor, whose murderers have still not been charged, arrested, fired, Earlier this week, you had protesters who were protesting um, in her honor um, to call for justice for Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. And 87 protesters peacefully went to the attorney general's home. They sat on the lawn. They were together, you know, locking hands and they were all arrested and charged with felonies. And so it got me thinking about the fact that there are more people that have been arrested for protesting Breonna Taylor's brutal murder, where she was shot over eight times, than the folks who actually killed Breonna Taylor. So let that sink in for a second. These systems, our justice system is biased, it is rife, with systemic racism. And so it's this interesting piece of why we have to stay engaged because this is happening and it continues to happen. And so I want to bring attention to this idea of we have to decenter whiteness, we have to call it what it is, and understand that it's a description of a system. And that's how we can begin to work on dismantling the system. I'm going to break down some terms for all of you, just so that we're all on the same page with the language that we're using when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work. Take a listen. A new term that you may have seen that's coming up is something known as BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C. And that is an acronym that stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. And the reason why the BIPOC term has um, emerged is because there was this, you know, in the last five years or so, this overarching umbrella of POC, People of Color. And what was happening when that word was being used, rather it was in journalism, Um, or writings and other spaces when the words POC were used it actually began to have an erasure on bringing attention to the specific challenges that black and indigenous folks we're experiencing this country. And so when the label POC started to get thrown out there, many scholars were saying, hmm, 
there's this erasure and there's not this attention to the historical marginalization of black and indigenous people here in the United States and globally as well, but specifically attention to the United States. And so BIPOC emerged as a way to say black indigenous people of color recognizing right in the system of white supremacy culture there are groups that are marginalized um, oppressed historically and also current day so when you see BIPOC now you know what it means I also want to break down the word intersectionality you probably have heard it what is it how does it show up so intersectionality for me the best way that I can explain it is to really share my own experience. So as I live and move through the day, through the world, my experience, I'm black, but I'm also a woman. And so those experiences are intertwined, they're interconnected, and I can't part and parcel them out. So when I show up in spaces, I have to contend with my gender but I also have to contend with my racial identity as a black woman. And intersectionality is this idea that oppression is interlinked with respect to identity. And so my experience is compounded for not only being black, but also as a woman. And so I have to think about these particular things. And so when I think about the pay gap, for example, right, that we know there is a disparity um, with respect to pay in this country, I'm looking at this from a gender lens, but also a racial lens and how gender and race impacts that inequity in pay for me which is 63 cents to a white man's dollar in the United States. And so I offer intersectionality because it really gives us a more nuanced perspective around identity, but also gives more context around the specific challenges that marginalized groups and people face in thinking about upward social mobility within societies. And so I I was just looking at this, um, something that was written that was sent to me. And it said, you know, do you notice that when black women speak, instead of reflection, there's always a rebuttal? And I said, oh, that's good. And so true in my experience, this idea of, I can't just be listened to. I have to show up in spaces where I have to prove either through my academic background, schools I've attended. I have to really push in ways to be heard, to be seen. That's very different from my white female counterparts. And that's real, y'all. And so when I think about this piece of intersectionality, it really connects to the historical experiences, but also the day-to-day experiences that many Black women like myself who are in leadership positions in various fields 
that we are faced with this. And so that's, again, thinking about white supremacy culture and how that plays a role in even who we choose to listen to, who we choose to let lead us, who we choose to support. And so that's why we have to really dig deep and do some real work because it's there like the air we're breathing. I want to get on radical love for a second. When someone calls you out, when someone takes the time to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong right now, that is an act of radical love because it suggests to you that I care enough about you, I want you to be better, that I'm willing to correct you, I'm willing to offer you feedback, I'm willing to offer you another perspective to enlighten you for your own edification, but also for your own growth, that is an act of radical love. Because... I do that all the time. And there's this personal, people take it personal as a personal attack. It's not a personal attack. It's an act of radical love. When you know better, you do better. I want you to be better. So the radical love from me can manifest in a radical change in you. I'll say that again. The radical love from me can spark radical change in you. So when you get called out, you get called out. But I'm only here for your growth. I'm here to hold you accountable. And I'm here because we all want to see radical change in our world. And if we're going to change this thing for the better, it means we got to do it different. It means we can't do the same old, same old. It means we got to do it different. And we have to set those expectations for ourselves, but also for the people around us. Radical love produces radical change. So we just got to keep working. We got to keep working. Even when we are exhausted, we have to keep doing the work on self. So I'm going to keep pushing you holding you accountable so that we can get this thing right. Okay, I want to make an announcement. Remember, I do a live on IG, Instagram Live, every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. So every Thursday, Pacific Standard Time, 8.30 Eastern, I do a live on Instagram, Conversations on Race. And so it's ongoing. It's going to continue. Um, One of my dear friends, um, we're both diversity practitioners, and we just chop it up. And we just have really great conversations around race. So I want you to join that live. Hit it up. You can ask questions, but we just talk and just really make it. We're just having a conversation. We're really trying to normalize language. And this past week... I wanted to bring this up. This past week, we had a conversation around the Oppression Olympics. And so I just want to bring this conversation here. Oppression Olympics, the idea that 
when there is one particular marginalized group that's being focused on, instead of focusing on that particular issue, people start with the oppression Olympics where they're like, but what about me? And I'm also oppressed and I've also had this experience and I've also been discriminated against. And I want to stop that. It's not the oppression Olympics. We're not out here trying to measure who's had it worse, who's been oppressed more because oppression sucks. So there's really no prizes. But I think what happens is that when that behavior exists, it manifests as a distraction and it manifests as a distraction away from the real issues that we need to be talking about and the real issues that we want to be working towards solving. So it's actually not okay when someone is sharing their experience or you are seeing attention to a specific you know, experience that you interject with, well, what about me? And I had it hard and I had this, you know, there's such this individualistic, you know, mentality that we really want to move away from. But it's not the oppression Olympics. We're not trying to debate or see who's had it worse. What we want to do is bring attention to some really pervasive issues that have shown up, have been here historically, but are showing up systemically. And let's just keep our focus on how we can really work to change that. And by doing the comparison of who's had it worse, and I'm seeing this show up with a lot of groups of like, well, what about us and what about us? And no one is negating someone's experience. But we do need to focus and we need to offer support and we need to recognize that when we participate in oppression Olympics, we actually are creating a distraction. And when you create distractions in the fight for justice, all it does is stalls the progress. So let's please take this oppression Olympics out of our minds and our vocabulary And let's really think about how we can work as a collective to really address these systemic issues that right now are having impact specifically on the black community and other communities of color. But also let's recognize that when we uphold the system of white supremacy culture, we all lose. We are all losing out. And so this idea of None of us are free until we are all free. So that's it for today, fam. I appreciate you rocking with me as always. Hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Relinda Speaks. Hit me up, hit me up. Leave a review on the podcast. I want to know what you're thinking. You can even support the podcast by hitting up patreon.com backslash Relinda. I appreciate the support. Take care. Be well. Wear your mask. I'll see you next time. Bye.